defended uh, for peace that brings us to where uh, I would like to uh, welcome everyone listening to us on the internet and if you've downloaded this as a podcast uh, God bless you I hope you enjoy the service from King's Church uh, this morning I want to uh, introduce our special speaker today you uh, if you are here in the building you've spotted something on your seat already I want to introduce Paul Garner to you who's going to uh, speak to us this morning uh, on the topic uh, really just fitting in with these issues of uh, creationism and the Bible I said one time I think it was last week or the week before we don't just believe in Jesus we believe in Genesis Amen some people believe in Jesus but they're not so sure about Genesis where well, we believe the Bible from Genesis to the maps Amen particularly if the maps are good of course and, uh, and uh, this year, 2009, it, they, uh, uh, the world have had a kind of a celebration, 150, it's 150 years of, of Darwin and his book, The Origin of Species, and the other bit of the title that always escapes me. And uh, so what we wanted to do as a church was to do a number of events. This is the third, the third of three, uh, that kind of, uh, if you like, defend the Word of God, and bring a different perspective uh, on this topic. So Paul, uh, we're thrilled you've been able to come. I know you, you are as busy as the angel Gabriel at Christmas. And um, uh, so I'm thrilled you, uh, you were able to come. We booked this a thousand years ago, didn't we? <laughs> anyway, that's how busy he is. So I want you please to stand, if you will, and to honor the man of God among us. Will you stand and will you welcome Paul Garner as he brings the presentation. God bless you. Okay, well, while I wait for the clicker, <laughs> great, thanks. Well, it's really good to be here uh, with you this morning. Uh, I'd like to just preface what I want to say today about um, the life of Charles Darwin with a short Bible reading from the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> if you have your Bible, you might want to follow along. It's in Hebrews chapter 3. And I want to read from verse 7 to the end of the chapter. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Now this passage is a passage where the writer to the Hebrews is uh, speaking about the, the people of Israel, the children of God, in the wilderness, in their wilderness wanderings. And he's speaking about the way in which they rebelled against God and their hardness of heart and their unbelief. And uh, the writer of the Hebrews says this, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation, and I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, 
so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Or so reads uh, God's word. Uh, As has already been said, 2009 is a very significant year. It's the 200th anniversary of the birth of the great uh, English naturalist Charles Darwin and 150 years this month uh, of the publication, uh, since the publication of his famous book on the origin of species in which he proposed his theory of evolution by natural selection. And I thought it would be an opportune time to take a look at the life of uh, Charles Darwin and to also look at his theory to explain what he said in The Origin of Species and to try to evaluate some of his ideas from a, from a biblical and creationist perspective. And it's quite an easy thing to take a close look at the life of Darwin because he was a great note taker. He wrote a diary throughout his life. He kept many notebooks. And so we can really get an insight into the man and the way that he was thinking. And what we find, I think, as we look at his writings is an intellectual man. He was a very clever man, uh, but a man who embodied many of the conflicts and contradictions that were prevalent in Victorian England at that time. But, you know, one of the most interesting, and I think perhaps one of the most surprising things to many people as we look at the biographies of this man's life and as we look at his own writings is the evidence we find that God was at work in the life of this man. God was pursuing this man, pointing him towards the way of truth. And even though, as we shall see, ultimately Charles Darwin hardened his heart towards God, and resisted God, yet we can see that God was at work in the life of this man. Well, Charles Robert Darwin was born on the 12th of February in 1809 in this house. This is the Mount in uh, Shrewsbury in the small market town of uh, in Shropshire. He was the fifth of six children, and he was born into quite a wealthy family. I think you can tell that probably from the kind of house they lived in. Uh, His father, Robert Darwin, was a successful financier and doctor. His grandfather, Erasmus uh, Darwin, was a a famous poet and natural philosopher. So he came from quite uh, a well-to-do family. Uh, This is Charles at the age of seven. When Charles was eight years old, he lost his mother. His mother, Susanna Wedgwood, uh, sadly died. His father had married Susanna. She came from a very famous um, family in Shropshire, the Pottery family, uh, who made the Wedgwood pottery. And Charles was quite close to his mother. His father was a much more emotionally distant kind of a man. And so Charles was really brought up by his elder sisters and by the maidservants in the house. And he grew up amidst a great deal of wealth and comfort. He enjoyed country sports. And he was sent off to uh, the Shrewsbury School, the local boarding school, between 1818 and 1825. At the age of 16, 
Uh, Charles's father sent him off to university, sent him up to Edinburgh University, which you can see here. Now, in those days, there were a number of options that would have been open in terms of a career to someone of Charles's background. Uh, he could have gone to study law in order to become a barrister or a lawyer, uh, but Charles had really shown no aptitude for law. Uh, he could perhaps have studied to go into the church, but in fact, Charles's father decided to send him up to Edinburgh to study medicine. The idea was that he would follow in his father's footsteps and become a doctor. And while he was at Edinburgh University, he came under the influence of this man. This is a biologist called Robert Grant. Uh, Robert Grant uh, uh, taught Darwin about natural history and really helped to sort of stimulate his interest in those things. But Charles very quickly decided he did not like the study of medicine. Uh, in those days, surgery was a pretty brutal practice. There weren't the anesthetics that we have today. And Charles witnessed his first surgery, which was on a young boy. And in those days, because there were no anesthetics, you just kind of held the boy down and got on with the job and did it as quickly as possible. And Charles almost fainted. He actually ran out of the room. He decided he could not stand the sight of blood or suffering in, the, in that kind of way. And so he decided, much to his father's consternation, that he was going to leave Edinburgh and he was going to give up the practice of medicine. So at this point, Charles's father, kind of despairing of his son, suggested to him, maybe you should study to go into the church as an alternative career. And Charles thought about this. In fact, he read many books on Christianity as he sought to make up his mind about this. And he, he decided, yeah, maybe there's something to this. You know, if I became a country vicar, uh, that would give me the time and the opportunity to also study natural history. I think pastors in those days must have had a lot more time on their hands than they do today. But anyway, he thought this would give him the opportunity to sort of indulge his interests in natural history. And so he decided this is what he would do. So in those days, in order to become ordained in the Church of England, you had to get a degree from an English university. And so Darwin's father enrolled him here in Cambridge, at Cambridge University. On the 15th of October in 1827, Charles was admitted as a member of Christ College. You can see the lovely gatehouse of Christ College if you walk down Sydney Street. Uh, but it wasn't actually until the 26th of January in 1828, the next year, that he took up residence in Cambridge. Charles had to brush up on his Greek. His, Greek, his schoolboy Greek wasn't quite good enough for the lectures, so he had to do some, kind of, um, some lessons in Greek. And then he kind of took up residence here. By that point, all of the rooms in the college had already been taken. And so Charles had to find lodgings elsewhere. And he actually took up lodgings above a tobacconist shop that was uh, opposite the uh, entrance to Christ College on Sydney Street. The building's not there any longer. It was demolished in the 1930s. But if you walk down Sydney Street and you find Boots the Chemist, that's the site where the building was, where the tobacconist shop was. And if you look carefully on uh, Boots the Chemist, you'll actually see the plaques on the wall that say Charles Darwin lodged here as a student. Well, Darwin was a very bright guy. There's no doubt about that. He, he, was, a, he was a clever student, but he was never really what you call a model student. He probably spent too much time uh, in country sports and doing other things. But he was a very passionate amateur naturalist, and he would wander the lanes and byways and fields around Cambridge with his fellow students, 
passionately collecting all kinds of things. This is part of his beetle collection that he uh, that he he made. He had a great love of collecting and cataloging specimens, and of course that stood him in great stead in the years ahead. Gained him a very formidable reputation as an observer of nature. And while he was at Cambridge, Charles came under the influence of this man. This is the Reverend John Stevens Henslow. He was an ordained uh, Anglican clergyman. He also taught botany at Cambridge. He was professor of botany. And Charles developed a very close friendship with this man, with Henslow. He became known as the man that walks with Henslow. And through uh, his association with Henslow, Charles learned a great deal about the practice of natural science. In fact, it was upon Henslow's recommendation that Charles had the opportunity to take part in that famous voyage on HMS Beagle, the survey ship. Uh, the man that you can see here is the captain of the Beagle, Captain Robert Fitzroy. Fitzroy was a Christian man. He was an evangelical Christian. And in those days, the life of a captain was a pretty lonely kind of a life. <clears throat> uh, it wasn't the done thing for the captain to mix with the crew. So quite often what a captain would do is he would take on board the ship someone who could be a gentleman companion to the captain, someone who could dine with him and engage him in good conversation. And uh, Fitzroy uh, was going on this long voyage on the Beagle and he invited Henslow to be his companion. Now, Henslow's wife was not at all um, happy about this. You know, the thought of her husband going off for maybe several years on this voyage didn't really appeal to Henslow's wife. So Henslow said to Fitzroy, what about taking this bright young student, Charles Darwin? And so that was how Charles got the invitation. Well, Charles's father was not keen that Charles went on this voyage. He had to get his father's permission and Charles's father thought this was a complete waste of time, that Charles was not going to come to anything in life, and this was just an opportunity to kind of have a jaunt around the world, and it, it would do him no good at all. But he said to Charles, look, if you can find one member of the family who thinks that this is a good idea, then maybe I'll let you go. And so Charles went to his uncle, Uncle Josiah Wedgwood, and he managed to persuade Josiah that he should go on this trip. And Josiah eventually twisted Darwin's father's arm to allow him to go on the voyage. And so that was how he came to be on the Beagle. Well, the round-the-world voyage from, uh, on the Beagle lasted almost five years, from 1831 to 1836. And they sailed from Plymouth, uh, and you can see the route that they took. And along the way, Darwin spent much of his time studying the geology and the biology of the different lands that they visited, including South America and the Galapagos Islands. He collected many specimens, boxes and boxes of specimens. He wrote down many observations in his notebooks. Um, he eventually wrote up a diary of the voyage, which became the book that we call The Voyage of the Beagle. And of course, it was the observations he made and the specimens that he collected while he was on that voyage, in particular those from the Galapagos Islands, that were especially significant in the way that his thinking was developing about the theory of evolution and the origin of species. And so I want to spend a bit of time just explaining what it was that Darwin saw while he was there on the Galapagos Islands. For five weeks in 1835, the Beagle was anchored off one or other of these islands. The Galapagos are a chain of 
volcanic islands about 600 kilometers off the west coast of Ecuador in South America. Now, they've never been connected to the mainland. They're volcanic islands. They've erupted as volcanoes from the seabed. And uh, during that five-week period, there were about 18 days when Darwin was able to actually go ashore and study the animals and the plants and the rocks and things on the islands. And Darwin was very, very impressed on the Galapagos Islands by the very close similarity of the animals and plants that he saw there to the ones that he'd seen on the South American mainland. They were very, very similar in many respects. But what struck him was that there were certain differences. They were very similar and yet not exactly the same. And also, as Darwin went from island to island, he realized that there were variations even between the different islands in the Galapagos chain. The the species he saw were not identical on the islands. And he began to wonder, why would the creator have made uh, these species on the islands unique, so similar to the ones on mainland South America, and yet unique, yet slightly different. And why are there these differences from island to island? And so Darwin began to puzzle about these things. Consider, for instance, the iguanas that Darwin saw on the Galapagos Islands, these great black lizards that kind of congregate around the the rocky coasts. Now, the, the Galapagos iguana turned out to be the world's only marine iguana. And I think you can see it's very, very similar to the typical land iguana. Very, very similar indeed. But there are some differences. The marine iguana actually dives underwater to feed on the algae clinging to the rocks. And when it does that, of course, it takes in seawater. And seawater is very salty, so it takes too much salt in. So it has to get rid somehow of that salt so it doesn't harm its metabolism. And the marine iguana has a special adaptation that allows it to get rid of the salt. It actually collects the salt in special glands, and then it sneezes the salt out. And that's why this marine iguana has this little white cap. Uh, This is actually salt that he's kind of sneezed out, and it's crystallized on the top of his head. And so Darwin thought, why would the creator have made an iguana that's so similar to the mainland one, and yet it has these very special sort of adaptations to its particular way of life? His attention was also drawn to a very strange pattern of similarities between the different species of mockingbirds that he found on the islands. On the very first island he came to, which was San Cristobal, he discovered that there were mockingbirds, very, very similar to the mockingbirds that he'd seen in Chile on the mainland. But they were slightly different. When he came to the second island of Floriana, he found more mockingbirds, but again, very similar to the mainland forms, very similar to the ones he'd seen on San Cristobal, but again, slightly different. He realized that there were different varieties of mockingbird on each island, so he began to very carefully label which island the particular specimens he collected came from. That was very fortunate because when he got back to England, a bird expert called John Gould told him that he'd not just collected different varieties of mockingbirds, but these were completely new species. These were distinct species on the different islands. He was also very taken by uh, the plants that he collected. Uh, He collected a hundred 
totally new species of plants that were completely new to science. And uh, he was most taken with the members of the daisy family. He collected 21 different species of daisies. 20 of them were unique to the Galapagos Islands. They were found nowhere else in the world. More amazingly, these are not like the little daisies that you find growing on your lawn. Okay, these are daisies that grew to the size of fully grown trees. These are daisy trees. And Darwin was again amazed. Why would a creator have made species that are so similar and yet different in some very significant respects? Now, in order to understand the, the significance, the impact that these things had on Darwin's mind, we need to understand a bit about the historical context uh, of Darwin's day. In Darwin's day, most people believe that God had made the animals and plants in the world that we see. They believed in God as creator. They also believed, however, that God had individually and separately made each and every species of animal and plant, and that they'd stayed exactly the same from the time God first made them to today. And so God had made lions, and they were exactly the same as the lions we see today. God had made tigers, exactly the same as tigers today. God had made pumas, exactly the same as pumas today. This is the idea that we call the fixity of species. The idea that species were made in the beginning by God, each species separately, and they've stayed fixed and unchanging right through to today. And Darwin, as he studied the things on the Galapagos Islands began to realize that actually species weren't fixed and unchanging. They had become modified to the particular conditions on each of the islands. Now, when you read the history books, quite often people will say, you know where this idea of fixed your species came from? It came from the Bible. People were, were reading the Bible They were getting from the Bible this belief in the fixity of species, and it was a mistake. The Bible was wrong. Well, you know, I've read the Bible very carefully. I've studied this question of what the Bible says about the origin of life and the origin of living things. And do you know, the Bible says nothing about species. The Bible doesn't even use the word species because it's a modern word. It wasn't invented until the 1600s. So the Bible doesn't say that God created each and every variety or each and every species separately. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created different kinds. That's what Genesis chapter 1 says. It talks about God making different kinds of animals and plants. And in fact, the Bible leads us to believe that these kinds are much broader groups than what a modern biologist would call a species. So, and in fact, as you carefully read through the book of Genesis, you'll find that the Bible implies that far from each individual species staying exactly the same as it was when God first made it in the beginning, actually the Bible implies that within those kinds, there's been change. For example, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning when God first made everything, this was a perfect world. There was no death. There was no suffering. There was no sickness or disease. There there was no meat eating or bloodshed. The animals were vegetarian. That's what Genesis chapter 1 teaches. The animals themselves were vegetarian. It wasn't until sin came into the world and and the world became spoilt by sin 
that meat-eating and carnivory and bloodshed came into the world. That must mean there were changes to the animals. They weren't exactly the same as when God first made them. There were changes to the plants. Thorns and thistles came forth where there hadn't been any before. Changes to the animals, changes to the plants. In fact, if we read the story of Noah's flood, Noah took on board the ark a a handful, a relative handful, representatives of the different kinds of animals and birds that God had made. And from those survivors on the ark, all of the animals and birds that we see on the land today have come into existence. Noah didn't take on board the ark two lions, two tigers, two pumas, two jaguars, two lynxes, two domestic cats. He just took two cats, right? Two of the cat kind. From that original pair, all of the variety that we see within the cat kind today has come into existence. So the Bible doesn't actually teach the fixity of species. And, you know, I went back and I I tried to trace where did this mistaken idea of fixity come from if it didn't come from the Bible. And I discovered, I won't go into all the details today, but I discovered that the belief in the fixity of species had not come from the Bible at all. It had actually come from Greek philosophy. It had come from paganism. It had come from a pagan belief. And that had been adopted into biology and had become a very popular view when Darwin came along. So Darwin was kind of reacting against this mistaken view, which hadn't come from the Bible at all. It had actually come from uh, pagan philosophy. But anyway, Darwin, when he visited the Galapagos, began to realize that species were not completely fixed and unchanging. And he proposed that species could become modified over time suited to their local conditions. So, here's uh, South America. Here are the Galapagos Islands. You probably can't see them very well, so we'll uh, blow those up. There they are. And on the Galapagos Islands, there are various unique species. We'll call them A, B, C, D, and E. And on the mainland, there are species which are not the same, but very, very similar. We'll call them X, Y, and Z. And Darwin proposed that what had happened in the past is that at some point, colonists from the mainland, representatives of these species, had swum or been blown across or had uh, drifted across, uh, ended up on these islands and had become modified, uh, adapted to the local conditions on the islands to give rise to these new species which were unique but very, very similar to the mainland species. And so the island species were descended from mainland ancestors. So that was the first thing that Darwin argues in The Origin of Species. He argues that species are not fixed, but in fact they do change. Now the second thing that Darwin then went on to puzzle over was if living species were not completely fixed and unchanging... How had they changed? What was the process? What was the, what was the mechanism by which they had changed? And Darwin came across the answer in quite an unexpected way. One day he was reading, this was in September 1838, he was reading an essay written by this man. This is Thomas Malthus. And Malthus had written a very famous essay on, on human population. And what Malthus basically said was this... He he argued that if human population just keeps on growing at the rate that it is, eventually 
the number of people would outstrip the supply of food. And the result would be that there'd be massive famine. Now, Malthus actually thought this was quite a good idea because he thought it would mean that all the less fit, probably the poorest people, of course, would, would, be, would be eliminated to leave the fit to survive and, uh, you know, a, a, and reproduce themselves. Pretty harsh uh, view of life, but that was, that was kind of what Malthus was arguing. Well, Darwin was reading this essay. And as he read it, Darwin suddenly realized this is essentially what's going on in the natural world all the time. If you think about the, the, the way that animals and plants reproduce, they reproduce in prolific numbers, don't they? Massive numbers. Now, of course, not all of those individuals survive. Otherwise, we'd be knee-deep in beetles or something like that. So obviously, most of them die. And Darwin began to realize that there must be a kind of a competition going on for resources, for food, for, in the environment. There must be this kind of war of nature going on. And he thought, you know, in any population, no two individuals are exactly alike. You know, we all differ slightly from one another. And he realized that if there's this war going on for competition for resources, which would be the individuals that would survive and which would be the ones that were eliminated he argued it would be those that had less advantageous characteristics that would be eliminated, and those that had variations which were more suited to the environment would be the ones that would survive, and they would pass their characteristics on to the next generation. And so this was the idea that Darwin came up with. Natural selection, the survival of the fittest, was the process by which species had changed over time and become adapted to their environment. And then he kind of added the third element to his theory, which was the idea of universal common descent, universal common ancestry. After about 1837, Darwin began to think that maybe if these kinds of changes in species could be added up over hundreds of millions of years, well, maybe all species could be interconnected on a single tree of life going right back to one original common ancestor that lived hundreds of millions of years ago that maybe began by just random processes in some chemical soup billions of years ago that eventually gave rise to all of life. And in one of his notebooks, he famously drew this picture of this evolutionary tree of life. And so this was the idea of universal common ancestry. Every species that's ever lived going back to just one original common ancestor that lived in the past. So we can see that Darwin's theory, and I've kind of summarized for you essentially the argument in The Origin of Species, is like a stool with three legs, okay? And if you can remember the three legs of the stool, you'll remember the key elements of Darwin's theory. First of all, Darwin proposed that species were not fixed and unchanging, he proposed that they actually do change over time. Secondly, he argued that natural selection was the mechanism by which they change. And thirdly, he argued that all species were related to one another by universal common descent. Now, let me just briefly here comment on each of these three key elements of Darwin's theory from a biblical perspective. Because Christians, I think, are sometimes confused about 
what did Darwin get right? What did he get wrong? You know, what are the areas where we disagree with him? What are the areas where perhaps we, we don't have such a, a problem? Let's think firstly about species change. Well, I've already said, haven't I, that nowhere does the Bible teach that species are completely fixed and unchanging. The Bible doesn't even talk about species. It just talks about the biblical kinds. And so I, I don't think that we have any stake in opposing the idea that species change. In fact, we can see it happening. We can actually observe species change going on around us, even within a single human lifetime. So I don't know of a single creationist biologist who would oppose the idea that species change. It's just one of the ways that God has created living things, to be able to adapt to their environment. It's part of the way that God has equipped living things to survive in a fallen world, right? So, so species do change. What about natural selection? Was Darwin right that natural selection was the mechanism by which species change? Well, we can certainly see natural selection going on in the world around us. We can see changes in the size of the beaks of finches on the Galapagos Islands, uh, depending on whether you're going through dry or wet seasons. We can see changes of that kind. That's natural selection in action. The question, I think, from a biblical perspective is, what does natural selection really amount to? You know, most of the examples of natural selection, when you actually look at them, they involve really trivial changes. Sometimes almost no change at all because it's just kind of a fluctuation where you get big beaks, small beaks, big beaks, small beaks over time. And it doesn't actually add up to anything very much. So natural selection is probably pretty limited. I think that all natural selection really does in nature is it eliminates harmful variations that arise by mutations, you know, harmful changes in species. So natural selection undoubtedly happens. I just don't think it has the creative power that Darwin uh, attributed to it. Our real beef, if you like, with Darwin is over this third leg of the stool, common descent. Darwin here made a huge leap of logic, didn't he? A huge leap from the evidence. The evidence showed him that maybe the land iguana and the marine iguana were related to one another. The evidence showed him that the different mockingbirds were maybe related to one another, or the different species of daisies, or the different tortoises. But then he went a huge step further and said, well, maybe if these kinds of changes go on for hundreds of millions of years, maybe the mockingbirds and the tortoises and the iguanas and the daisies all go back to one common ancestor. Now that is a huge leap beyond anything that he was able to demonstrate through evidence. And so I think that's where we kind of need to focus our disagreement, really, with Darwin. The idea of universal common descent. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that all living things do not go back to one universal common ancestor because God made lots of different kinds in the beginning. So we know that 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 idea is not true and the evidence uh, really goes way beyond anything that Darwin was able to demonstrate. Well, for 20 years after Darwin returned to England, he began to, he continued to work on his theory. Um, he, He continued to write various versions of his theory as an essay. He was actually halfway through writing an enormous book on the subject of evolution when he was interrupted by a letter that came from this man. This is not Darwin. 
This is another man by the name of Alfred Russell Wallace. Now, Wallace was another naturalist. He was a collector who was out in Southeast Asia at the time. And he wrote to Darwin and sent him a letter, including an essay that he was writing. And when Darwin read this essay, he was dismayed because he realized that Wallace had basically come up with the same idea of evolution by natural selection that he had come up with. He realized he was probably about to be beaten to it, about to be kind of um, scooped, if you like. So he consulted with some friends, Charles Lyell and Joseph Hooker and others, and said, "What, what do we do about this? Well, they decided that the fairest thing to do would be for both of these men to have the opportunity to present their ideas at the same time at a single scientific meeting. And so that's what happened in in July 1858. There was a meeting in London of the Linnaean Society, and both Darwin and Wallace had papers that were read to that meeting. Actually, neither man was there. Darwin was ill at home in Kent, and Wallace was still in Southeast Asia. So neither of these two men were there, but their papers were read in their absence. Now, many people then ask the question, well, okay, if both these men kind of basically proposed the same idea, why is it that we're celebrating Darwin and not Wallace? Most people have never heard of Alfred Russell Wallace. And probably at least partly uh, the answer is that Darwin was a superb popularizer. You know, Darwin, when he realized that he was about to be scooped, um, he began to write up his ideas in a popular book which became known as The Origin of Species. It was published in 1859, November 1859. And uh, Darwin didn't write The Origin of Species as a scientific book. This was not for his scientific colleagues. This was a popular science book. It was for the general public. And it sold out on the day it was issued... Okay, so Darwin was a really good popularizer of his ideas. He'd actually held off publishing his ideas for a very long time because he went through years of worry and indigestion and ill health because he was worried about how his ideas would be received. Actually, the irony is he needn't have worried because the general public, by and large, pretty quickly adopted the idea of evolution. The scientific community certainly did. And I think more sad from our perspective is that the church, the wider church, very quickly adopted evolutionary ideas. You know, one of the reasons I think they were so quick to adopt evolution is because, in effect, they'd already abandoned belief in the authority of the Bible years before. Going back way into the mid-1700s, most of the church had abandoned the idea of six-day creation. They'd abandoned the idea that God had made the world a few thousand years ago. They'd adopted the idea of millions of years of earth history, even though that meant that death and bloodshed must have been around for millions of years before God had created the first people. And they'd adopted all of these unbiblical ideas. And so when Darwin came along, it just wasn't such a big step to kind of accommodate Darwin as well. The dangers of of compromise over the authority of the scriptures. Well, what about Darwin's own religious views? You know, these have been commented on by many people. There's no doubt, I think, that there were many Christian influences in Darwin's life. We've already mentioned his very close friendship at Cambridge with John Stevens Henslow, who was a, 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 a Christian man. 
Uh, he, he was very friendly on the Beagle Voyage with Captain Robert Fitzroy, who was a very strong evangelical Christian. Uh, another Christian mentor was the Reverend Adam Sedgwick, who taught Darwin much of what he knew about geology. Uh, Sedgwick is the man after whom the museum here in Cambridge in Downing Street is, is named. And so Darwin had many friends and mentors who were Christians. He was also very, very influenced by his wife. His wife, Emma, who he married in 1839, she was his cousin, by the way, so they, they, they had a very sort of close family relationship. Um, Emma came from the Wedgwood family. Now, the Wedgwood family were Unitarians. In other words, they weren't Orthodox Christians. You sometimes hear people say, Emma Darwin was a Christian. Well, she wasn't really. She, her, her views were very unorthodox. She denied the deity of Christ, for example. So she came from a very unorthodox background. But there's no doubt she was a very religious woman. And when Charles and Emma married, Charles had already begun to kind of slide away from any kind of belief that he ever had. He'd begun to deny uh, the existence of a personal God. He didn't believe in heaven and hell. He didn't believe the Bible was inspired. He didn't believe in the existence of the soul. And Emma was very worried about this. And, you know, she used to write to Charles, expressing her concerns and her anxieties. And there are some very moving letters. Here's one of them. She, she wrote to Darwin on one occasion, imploring him to go back to the Bible and read the words of Christ in the discourse at the Last Supper. And here's what she said to her husband. There is danger in giving up revelation in casting off what has been done for your benefit as well as for that of all the world. I should be most unhappy if I thought we did not belong to each other forever. You know, Darwin kept that letter safe all his life. And after he died, it was discovered among his possessions and on it in his own handwriting, he'd written these words. He said, when I am dead, know that many times I have kissed and cried over this. So there's no doubt that despite her own sort of doctrinal error and confusion, Emma pointed Charles back to the Bible, pointed him, told him to go and read the scriptures. Isn't that interesting that throughout his life he had that kind of influence? Well, despite all of these uh, influences, Darwin gradually seems to have hardened his heart towards God. And in particular, he struggled with the idea of how could a loving God allow the death and suffering that we see in the world all around us. And tragically, this issue of death and suffering came home to him in a very personal way with the loss of his young daughter, Annie. Annie was kind of the joy of Charles's life. Uh, she was probably a favorite daughter. But sadly, when Charles was only 42, Annie, I think, was about 10, she lay in bed dying. About a year earlier, she'd contracted some kind of stomach illness. Uh, it seemed similar to the stomach illness that had troubled Charles throughout his life. He'd sent Annie off to various health retreats to try to get some relief, but to no avail. And sadly, uh, she was in bed uh, dying. Charles would stay close by her side very often, often relapsing back into his own illness. And after many days of awful suffering, sadly Annie uh, slipped into a coma and died. 
And do you know, the death of his daughter seems once and for all to have turned Charles Darwin away from God. From that time on, his rejection of God became utter and total. And again, I think partly at least the blame for this must rest with the Christian church, which had abandoned a biblical view of history. The church had no answer to the question of death and suffering because it had adopted this view that death and suffering and bloodshed were not the consequence of human sin, but they'd been around for millions of years. So how could death and suffering and bloodshed be the punishment for sin, be the curse upon sin? And of course, you don't have a consistent biblical gospel if you reject that idea. Because why did Christ come to die? Christ came to the earth, God in human flesh, lived a perfect life of obedience, the kind of life that Adam ought to have lived and failed to live, the kind of life we ought to have lived and haven't lived, a life of perfect obedience to God's law, and yet Christ was willing to go to the cross, and yes, to suffer and to die, physically to die, to shed his blood, to bear the crown of thorns. That's a reference, isn't it, to Genesis 3, bearing the curse in the place of sinful people like you and me. So that if we place our trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we can be reconciled to our creator. That's the gospel message. But how can that message be true if death and suffering and bloodshed is not the punishment for sin, but was around already? And it leaves the Christian without any future hope. Because the Bible is very clear. Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, one day he will return in glory. And there'll be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The curse will be rolled back. There'll be a restored creation. There'll be no more death or suffering, crying, mourning or pain. That old order of things will be swept away. And those who have placed their trust in Christ will live forever in eternity in a restored creation with their creator. That's the gospel message. And sadly, because the church had abandoned certain key beliefs in Genesis, they were actually left without answers for people like Darwin who struggled with this issue of death and suffering. We're still in that situation today, sadly. Well, Charles Darwin died on the 19th of April in 1882. He was given a state funeral Um, partly as compensation because he never received a knighthood. He was actually due for a knighthood, being considered for one, when he died. And his followers, Thomas Henry Huxley, his cousin Francis Galton, actually engineered things kind of behind the scenes. They used their influence to get Darwin a state funeral in Westminster Abbey. Darwin actually wanted to be buried in the small country churchyard in Kent, where other members of his family had been buried. Uh, and, And so it was that Uh, Darwin in 1882 came to be interred in Westminster Abbey and you can still go today and see uh, the place where he's buried there in the floor of Westminster Abbey. Isn't it interesting that a man like Charles Darwin whose ideas have done so much over the years to undermine the foundations of Christianity in our land and to turn people away from God is buried in the foundations of our national church. There's a parable there, I think, for those who have the eyes to see. You know, some uh, well-meaning Christians have argued that Darwin 
experienced a deathbed conversion to Christianity and actually repudiated his theory. And I get asked about this a lot, so I just want to briefly uh, mention it here. Unfortunately, it's unlikely to be true. Uh, the, the story, the rumor can really be traced to this lady. This is Lady Elizabeth Hope. She was an evangelist and a temperance campaigner who, uh, about six months before Darwin's death, visited the Darwin family home while she was down there conducting a mission in that area. And when she emigrated later to North America, she wrote up her story in a little Baptist magazine. And basically the story amounts to the fact that she had visited the Darwin home and found Darwin in bed reading his Bible, and he had commented upon his admiration for the scriptures. Well, that's not really surprising, because we know that Darwin, even though he didn't really believe in the inspiration of the Bible, he he did kind of have a grudging respect for for, for some Christians. He had a good relationship with the vicar in, in the village where they lived. He actually gave to Christian mission. He gave to a mission to the Tierra del Fuegans, believe it or not, not because he was concerned about their eternal salvation, but rather he could see the good that the missionaries were doing in raising their standards and quality of life. So there's no doubt he had a kind of a grudging respect for Christianity. But nowhere does Lady Hope uh, suggest that he had become a believer or that he had turned his back on his previous ideas. These were things that had kind of sprung up over the years subsequent to the publication of this story. It's kind of like Chinese whispers, you know, where the story gets embellished over time. So how then should we evaluate Darwin the man today? You know, it's really ironic, I think, that Darwin's motivation was to explain the origin and the development of life without any reference to God. He wanted to kind of cut God out of the equation and explain things purely naturalistically. And the irony is this, he was never able to disentangle his search for an answer from all of the religious questions that perplexed him. Was there really a God? Is this God involved in his creation? What's the meaning and purpose of life? What about death and suffering? And the tragedy is that although throughout his life, God seems to have pointed Darwin towards the way of truth, to the Bible where he could find the answers that he was seeking, Charles Darwin chose not to look. Well, there are many lessons that we can learn from studying the life and legacy of Charles Darwin. And as we conclude, let me just suggest briefly three The first thing that I think we can recognize is that Darwin was right about some things, and yet I think he was dead wrong about others. Uh, And we have to remember, don't we, that science and the conclusions of men and women of science are fallible. They're always limited and provisional, and scientific theories come and go. That's just the nature of science. Uh, And Darwin was probably right about species change. He was right about natural selection. He was probably wrong about, I think he was wrong based on the scriptures about common descent. And we have to remember that scientific theories are being put forward by men and women who are fallible, who are fallen, who are darkened in their spiritual understanding. And we should never fall into the trap, as I think the church in Darwin's day did, 
of compromising the clear teaching of Scripture based on these fallen, fallible ideas put forward by men and women who don't know all the answers. We need to make sure that we base our thinking on the Scriptures. The second thing that we should know is that Darwin very consciously and willfully rejected the authority of the Bible. But ultimately, see where it left him. It left him without any satisfying answers to the real questions, the deep questions of the human heart that perplexed him. In the face of his immense pain and grief at losing his young daughter, what could Darwin do other than shrug his shoulders and say, that's just how things are. The world is just an unpleasant place. Death is nothing special. It's been around for millions of years. It will be around for millions of years into the future. You've just got to get used to it. That's the way the world is. What kind of answer is that to people who are struggling with grief and death and suffering? You know, we need to make sure that if we want to have answers to the big questions of life, we stick to the Bible's answers. We need to base our thinking on God's wisdom, not on our own foolish reasoning. And the Bible tells us that we need to be clear about these things because we need to have answers for others. When they ask us the reason for the hope that we have within us, we need to be able to give them the, the answers that God would give them. And so this is very important so that we can witness to others. And then the third and final thing to note is that Darwin ultimately resisted God and hardened his heart towards God and the result was that Darwin eventually stopped listening to God altogether. And I think that should strengthen our resolve that when God comes to us, when God prods us, when God speaks to us, when God pursues us, we should yield to God and not resist him. You know, throughout Darwin's life, God was pointing Darwin towards the way of truth, bringing him in, into contact with Christian friends and colleagues and mentors, having people point him to the scriptures, directing him to the gospels. But he wasn't prepared to yield to those promptings by God. What about us? Do we have a soft heart towards God? Or do we have a hard heart towards God? Are we resisting him? Because that's a very dangerous place to be. Because if we are resisting God, there may come a day when tragically, like Darwin, we stop listening to God altogether as well. Well, I'm going to conclude there and hand back to uh, Peter to conclude the service. Can I, uh, just before I do that, just briefly mention some of the resources I've brought with me? Uh, do take the opportunity to, to come and have a look at the, the bookstall. The, the prayer letter that hopefully you've received on, on your chair as you came in will tell you a bit more about our ministry, Biblical Creation Ministries, and gives you our contact details uh, and details on the back of our website where you can find more information. Um, I've brought with me a number of uh, books and DVDs and magazines. Can I particularly recommend this copy of Answers magazine? It's actually not produced by our organization. It's produced by our friends in Answers in Genesis. And earlier this year, they produced a special issue of their magazine. It's £2.50, and it's all focused around Charles Darwin. And if you want to remember some of the things that you've heard today, you'll find much of that material in that issue. I found it the most helpful resource this, this year that I've come across. 
to help Christians understand what the issues are and to understand Darwin the man. And it's a great resource as well for giving away to others. And I couldn't also uh, give up the opportunity this morning of just mentioning my own book. Uh, Very timely, it came out in this Darwin year back in March, The New Creationism. If you want a a kind of an overview of what creationists think about geology or biology or astronomy, it's kind of a layman's guide to all of of those sorts of issues. It kind of gives you an, an overall picture and it's based on some of the latest scientific work that creationists have been doing over the last couple of decades. So it's a, it's a good introduction to the topic if that's the kind of book that you're looking for. Well, thank you for your patience. I know I've overrun. I, I'm glad that the uh, notice earlier said we finish around 12.15. I'll hand back. Amen.